Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt, where I look at the week's financial news. That can be a bit confusing, misleading, and take you off course, and I help to make it actionable, understandable, and clear. What a week. Therefore, what a show. Hope you stayed warm. Hope that the pipes didn't freeze on you as they did for me, but they didn't burst in my house. So hope that went well for you if you're a Dallasite. If you're a listener in Spain, bienvenidos, and I'm sure the weather's just fine. We've got three articles. They're pretty great. First one off the top, and we might have time for Robert's Corner. I know we get a lot of feedback. Where's Robert's Corner? Where's Robert's Corner? Okay, we, we hear your feedback. We want to try to make time for Robert's Corner. We shall see. But First article, what you need to know about financial advice is policymaker debate changes to rules. I'm going to rant about the government and why I think it's well-intentioned what they're trying to do, but not effective for you. Next article, sovereign wealth giant, Norway's fund Norges. Uh, it's going to actually pursue, legally, KPMG, Goldman Sachs, and others because Silicon Valley Bank, they lost a bunch of money stock picking. And then in closing, Wall Street Journal article, forget the meme stocks and Bitcoin, these investors are hunting quality. Now, why could I take an issue with an article like that? You shall see. But at the top, CNBC article, Sharon Epperson and Stephanie Dew, if we bid her adieu. What you need to know about financial advice is policymakers debate changes to rules. So in this article, these writers are saying, hey, retirement shavers need to ask questions of the professionals who help them make critical financial decisions. Amen. I agree with that. They say, knowing the benefits financial financial professionals may receive can be essential in helping you figure out whose investment advice you should trust and follow. Amen. I'm in agreement. This is all good. And then the waters get to touch murky. They say this, fee-only advisors don't receive commissions for products. They may receive a percentage of assets managed, a flat fee, or hourly payment. Okay, here's the problem, class. The customer does not know what they are being charged. If they made me king for a day, and what a glorious day that would be in our United States of America, but if they made me king for the day, what would my disclosure requirement be? It'd be very simple. And it would create a lot of confidence on the part of customer and a lot of fear on the part of purveyors of financial advice. Because what I would ask for is, you must, once a year, if your client wants it or doesn't want it, you must disclose what you charge them for the year. Now, of course, if the client is paying by the hour, this is a very simple exercise. So for your beloved Robert Hunt Financial, this would not take much. In fact, the client already knows what they're being charged because they are sending the money via check or credit card. The transparency is absolute. Now, of course, you were right to say that various financial product recommendations come with some expense ratio. Even if it is our beloved index fund, even though sometimes that can be a negative expense ratio or a zero cost, it's still there, which creates some requirement, but that could be generated at the fund house level on your 1099. These are the fees you paid. And that would be it. This article goes into all the gobbledygook because what's happening is we've got the special interest and the industry saying, if we don't allow 
uh, financial advisors to make money on a commission, selling annuities, obfuscating the fees they charge, then there won't be financial advice for people. What, what they're in a sense saying is, we don't think that the customer needs to know what they pay for financial advice. That will harm them. Their reason being, this will cause fewer financial advisors to exist in the marketplace with people of less means. I disagree. I disagree completely. I think it's a failed experiment. And I think the most important thing you can offer the populace is transparency and choice. Kind of like Mexican food in Dallas. Aren't you glad that they didn't come in and tell you what you could or couldn't like with Mexican food in Dallas? What you couldn't couldn't charge for? Margaritas can't cost more than five bucks. You better believe the bottom shelf tequila will be flowing, but the customer may not like that. So I advocate for a Mexican food style regulatory environment where it requires, you know what the fajitas cost, the cheese enchiladas cost, you pay for them. That's all the cons consumer needs. The problem I see is large incumbents not wanting to change their ways, the government not thinking clearly on the issue because large incumbents sometimes can color their thinking. But what does this all mean for you, listener? I think this can feel overwhelming. They've been having this debate for decades. You can just leave the arena. Exit the debate. Invest for yourself. Hire an hourly financial advisor, and then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. The voice on this podcast happens to be one of those, but there are many others, many others. And oh, by the way, there are a lot of other good solutions now that are not necessarily hourly advisors, but they're still good. Okay, um, Various robo-advisor solutions are good. Now, they might not be as comprehensive, but they're still good. So, know what you pay for financial advice. My experience is no one knows. No one knows. When I do my onboarding and ask people, do you know what you paid for financial advice? I know the answer before I ask it. I ask the question to create the urgency in the client that, oh dear, I don't know. Oftentimes I'll follow it up with, well, do you know what you paid for your car? Well, of course I know what I paid for your car. Do you know what you paid for your car? Well, of course I know. But oftentimes financial advice, financial products are the largest purchase someone will make. To not know what you're being charged is a problem. So let's figure it out. Up next, Wall Street Journal, Elliot Brown. Headline, Sovereign Wealth Giant Pursues Goldman Sachs, KPMG, and others over SVB Collapse. Norway's fund, Norges, says more than $24 billion in market value was destroyed in filing for class action lawsuit. Now, this happens all the time. Whenever you have a stock blow up like this, here come uh, lawyers, and oftentimes there's, there's a case. There's a case that can be made. But... In this instance, this is a very sophisticated, very sophisticated uh, pension fund out of Norway, government pension fund. It's huge. Absolutely huge. By my records, I show one and a half trillion with a T in U.S. dollars. 
1.5 trillion. So you better believe they got some pretty good analysts on the case for their individual stock picking adventures. And yet, and yet, here we go. The world's largest sovereign wealth fund is going after the now defunct Silicon Valley Bank. You guys remember that? It almost seems like an eternity ago where it went kaput. It's management and the Wall Street advisors that aided its rise. Norwich's Bank Investment Management, which manages Norway's 1.5 trillion wealth fund, and other SVB shareholders attacked the failed bank in a legal filing late Tuesday. The filing accused SVB, that's at Silicon Valley Bank, and its executives of concealing the lender's ailing health from public view while also ignoring warnings about risk and rising interest rates. Okay, all this could be true. I think the great takeaway from this is stock picking is hard. And they're going after these name brand, you know, KPMG and Goldman Sachs. These aren't just run-of-the-mill names here. They're, they're saying it was an information issue. The quality of information their analysts were using was inferior. Therefore, it wasn't their fault that they chose Silicon Valley Bank, it was the information they received. Now, that very well may be true. I don't know. I am suspicious. I am suspicious. The lesson for us listeners, this is hard. Can you imagine at $1.5 trillion, you're picking stocks and you just, you don't quite know what you're doing? The Norwegian fund owned about 1% of SVB shares, a stake worth $140 million. The CEO... Nikolai Tangen says we need to make sure financial markets have the integrity that is necessary to work in a proper way. Amen. Uh, so I'm all about it. I'm all about advocating for yourself here as an investor if, if there is actual fraud. However, however, the lesson I see in this is uh, if Norges, $1.5 trillion, can't quite discern whether a bank is being run properly or not. Can you? Can I? As the great Macaulay Culkin would say, I don't think so. In Home Alone, when he's at the, at the grocery store. I don't think so. We cannot. Humility is required. And then, final article by Brenda Leon. Forget meme stocks and bitcoins. The Wall Street Journal article. These investors are hunting quality. The targets are shares of companies with mix of growth, reliable profits, and strong balance sheets. Now, what could I have an issue with here? The article begins, After an everything rally that pushed major stock indices near new highs, some investors just want the good stuff. They're looking for quality stocks, broadly defined as shares of companies with some combination of growth, reliable profits, and strong balance sheets. Those run the gamut from recent high flyers such as Microsoft and NVIDIA to steady performers such as Coca-Cola and Johnson & Johnson. Banks, including Goldman Sachs, UBS, and Wells Fargo, recommended that investors buy high-quality stocks in their year-ahead outlooks. GMO, the asset manager co-founded by Jeremy Grantham, launched an actively managed exchange-traded fund focusing on quality. The firm's first ETF in November, quality. Ay, ay, ay. So many problems here. So many reasons why this can take you off, off, off the tried and true and into the darkness. So what is a quality stock? Well, they here it is. They broadly define it as companies with that growth and reliable profit, strong balance sheets. Oh, that's all very well. Very well. That's all fine. Um, what they're missing is price. Price. It's obvious to the market what quality is and what it isn't. 
It is. It's obvious. So when someone tells you, hey, we're going to avoid the bad stocks and just buy the good ones, that actually has a veneer of truth. Oh, what a relief. What a, oh, good, we're buying quality, not garbage. We do that at the grocery store. Do we not? Those are the bad bananas. Pick the good ones. In that analogy, where does it break down? The bad and the good bananas, they cost the same in most instances, right? With stocks, the market is constantly pricing. Constantly. All the time. Higher prices, meaning you pay more per dollar of earnings for a quote-unquote quality company than a marginal company where there's no growth and the prospects are bad, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the market does. So there could just as easily be a garbage ETF that invests only in the garbage stocks. And that could outperform. And it may in certain environments. You as an investor, your job is to ignore it. Ignore it. Invest in the market capitalization exchange-traded fund or mutual fund index fund. It will capture all this information about what quality is and isn't. As we just learned from our friends at Norgis, the $1.5 trillion, they, they thought Silicon Valley Bank may, might be quality. It was not. It was garbage. The market found that out. So, when someone offers you a product and they say, don't you worry, investor, don't you worry. I'm going to invest in the quality. And oh, by the way, this article shows historic performance data to back up the claim. The um, iShares MSCI USA Quality Factor Exchange Trade Fund gained 29% in 2023, ahead of the S&P 500's 24% decline. Oh. Oh. But it lagged behind the index's 19% decline in 2022, falling 22%. So it was worse in 22, better in 23. And guess what, class? It's going to keep oscillating around the index. You're just going to pay more for it. The job of the investor is to buy it all with low cost, low cost, low cost, long-term horizon, and simple, simple, simple. Now, we've got a touch of time for Robert's Corner, and so I want to offer this reminder to us as we step into the corner. It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood here at Robert's Corner that you are living in the greatest time in humanity's history of being an investor the greatest time. I'm currently reading a book with my children titled Blood on the River. It's historical fiction about Jamestown and the Virginia Company, the Virginia Company investors and how they sought to profit from natural resources being found in Virginia. Gold, unfortunately, not found by these investors. And I, the thought came to me, oh, how hard must it have been in the early 1600s to have been an investor if the Norges Sovereign Wealth Fund thought it was hard to get accurate data, you can imagine the data these guys were getting. The, the sailing across the Atlantic took a bit, months and months. The information you got was not always great. Didn't have KPMG to audit. Well, fast forward to today, we have incredible information, incredible access. The democratization of information is so good. The tools available to you, the investor, are so good. And this is what I find absolutely unbelievable. The Norges Sovereign Wealth Fund, managing $1.5 trillion, has no better tools and access than you or I. Now, I recognize that will be argued, but it ain't. Tr it is the truth. Whatever argument they have, it just ain't so. 
Why? Because their results would be so much better if they had some. You know, this is the same argument for Harvard's endowment, Yale's endowment, Princeton's endowment, maybe even Texas A&M's endowment, the big four, as, as, you, as you will say from time to time. Their returns aren't better than the common man's returns. So maybe the common man's philosophy is not so common. Maybe there's something special in it. Oh, yes, there is. So take heart, investor. You're actually living in the very best time humanity's ever had to invest. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean the price you're paying is low. I mean, you, of course, there were other seasons where earnings multiples were lower, meaning the price of those bananas was cheaper. March of 2009 or 1987 or 1934, 1942, 1896, 1869. These were all times when stocks were quote-unquote cheap on a relative basis on their earnings. But it's never been a better time to actually click the button. You've never had it better. Never. The great challenge before you, investor, before me is, are we willing to invest the time to develop a robust and comprehensive investment philosophy that can stand the test of time so that when we get pitched a quality stocks index, we can say, oh, thank you so much, I will pass. And what we tell that salesperson in parting is, what I focus on is keeping those costs low, that investing simple, and that time horizon long, because I know that's what's gonna give me the best shot on my investing journey.